Hey everyone, welcome to Neighbor Science, the only podcast about political economy and anime. We are here to decide if the future of civilization will be Blom or Dr. Stone. And today we are talking about the factory system, everybody's favorite way to do work. <laughs> yeah, distributed slavery in a building. So in order to talk about the factory system, we need something to contrast it with. What came before the factory system? Uh... So the answer to that, of course, is the putting out system, which I think is a very funny and vaguely sexual name. <laughs> I mean, I was I was going to say, if I'd had a putting out system in my 20s, you know, I wouldn't have gone to grad school. I'd be fine. Yeah, yeah it's called Tinder, I think. <laughs> well, that is, for most people, far from systematic. But <laughs> <laughs> um, Well, I, then I guess it's called sex work. Sex work is a system. Yeah. Yeah. The, it's a bit like a fact. Put, putting out work is work, okay? <laughs> yes, it is. That is true. Yes. Uh, so a lot of people might know this more as like the uh, the workshop system or like the uh, the cottage craft system or something like that. So it's basically the system that was used in you know the ancient and medieval era, uh, which continues mm. today even uh, in some places. And uh, basically, it's where a central contractor uh, hires small shops to produce a run of goods, as opposed mm -hmm. to it being done in a central place of manufacturing, like a factory. Gotcha. Okay, so, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so instead of having one centralized building where you know a bunch of people uh, do small operations to produce mm -hmm. like semi-finished products, and then eventually come out with a full fully fledged product uh mm. the the putting out system was um there was some semi-finished products but mostly it was you know you would get, get materials and then make a finished product and mm -hmm. it would just mm -hmm. happen in a bunch of little cottages or workshops instead of one big factory right and right yeah, so ahead. so well i was gonna say uh not to get too far ahead of ourselves here um but that's actually that seems like the sort of thing that we can try to go back to now as things like print on demand, um, in particular, like 3D printing on demand and small shops uh, and um, the push again back to like local production and local uh, buying and selling and all this kind of stuff. Like, I feel like we could potentially swerve back to something like that just in a more efficient and like uh, labor, like less labor intensive kind of way now that we have all this tech. Yeah. So we could actually potentially return to that as like a norm um, and like save ourselves a lot of time, energy and grief if we can just kind of break free of, you know, all this, uh, you know, if we could, I think, again, not trying to get ahead of ourselves with the theme here and the, and the topic here, um, but if we could get back to something like the putting out system where we are autonomous doing it, as opposed to letting the whole like gig economy bullshit ruin our fucking lives by right. taking advantage of this ahead of us, you know, like by co-opting it before and preempting it before it's even uh, 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 prevalent, you know, uh, I think that's something that we can work for. We're toward, I mean, anyway. Well, one of the great things about the putting out system was that um, it tended to be done as piecework instead of mm -hmm. wage work, mm -hmm. which uh, piecework is like so fucking rare now. Yeah. Like I, like I can't think of an industry that really uses it anymore. Um, Not as an industry, no. Yeah. Um, yeah except for luxury like, goods. Yeah, probably true, yeah. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. 
like fruit picking or like uh-huh. like uh, produce harvesting used to be piecework. Like you mm. you would get paid by the bushel, right? Of that's right. Paid by the hour. Mm-hmm. So if you could work faster, um, then you could make more money. Or uh, as opposed to you know wage work, you could say pick you know five bushels of produce and then be done for mm-hmm. the day. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. versus having to stay there all day and, you know, doesn't matter, like, how fast or slow you go, you're there all day. Right. Um, so when when modern people think of the, the putting out a workshop system, we think of kind of an ahistorical myth, especially, like, um, like post-Industrial Revolution, or post, uh, mm-hmm. well, I don't know if the author meant Industrial Revolution or American Revolution, actually, because, like, when I read it, I thought they meant American Revolution, but I guess it could be either one. Um, but anyway, uh, so, like, the way we think of it is usually, like, something we see in, like, A Knight's Tale or, you know, like, fucking, I don't know, Lord of the Rings or WoW or whatever, yeah. Um, yeah. where, you know, an, an adolescent becomes a, an apprentice to a craftsman uh, uh-huh. who's, like, yep. like, a fatherly or avuncular figure to them and then eventually becomes a journeyman and then once they, like, perfect their craft, they become, like, a master... Right, um, and then they become and, uh, a lover. As, and then... as as my girlfriend put it, I asked her like uh, how she thought this worked because I was just trying yeah. to get her to like say like w- what the common knowledge idea of the system is, and she's like, right, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're the apprentice, and then you're the tradesman, and then you just mm-hmm. die, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of seems like it's yeah. about right. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I could say like this is still true of specific trades like my grandfather who was a plumber went okay. through this went through this sort of arc in his profession um which was and w- which was he um became an apprentice um and then he became a, a journeyman and then a master you know because that's the conventional way that you learn yeah so so his whole family so this is this is kind of like a little snapshot of like one way that uh these industries have worked and can still work in this sort of very traditional sense uh, or in the traditional sort of format is that like they had a family business. I think it went back like two generations before him where somebody learned to be a plumber, you know, and then they started like a plumbing sort of shop like this. And then um, they raised uh, whichever of their kids wanted to be involved in the family business, you know, to, um, they train them from kids, you know? Um, so they start as an apprentice when they're like, I think 12 or 13 or so. And they just start kind of helping around and shit like that and getting like a general sense of how things are run, um, by the big people, you know, um, their dad, their uncle, whatever. And then, yeah. And then eventually they become skilled at a basic level enough to trust them with more, um, more duties and stuff like that. Um, and to kind of directly help out like the master plumbers and stuff. And then they become, so they become a journeyman. And then as a journeyman, they're actually able to uh, fulfill a lot of this work, you know, um, up till the point where they're kind of considered to have mastered all of these skills. And then that's why they become the master in the sense that they're a master of the skills. Um, And so this is kind of one of those ambiguities in the term master where you can be the master of the shop as in the like owner, runner, whatever business runner, you know, the executive, the executive, right. Right. Um, but you, but the point of calling them the master in the trades is to indicate that they have 
you know, general mastery of those skills that are necessary to basically respond to any need within that sort of cone. Um, so this is just to clarify for listeners, kind of like the, the, the titles, how it seems to have worked traditionally. Um, and it was a way to kind of keep the work, um, keep the structure of the work sort of flowing and steady uh, without risking too much on inexperienced workers. Um, and um, in the family, in this kind of family shop model, of course, like the apprentice and the journeyman are making less partly because uh, this idea of, of risk, I guess, and also partly because they're being taken care of by the shop and the family, you know? Um, and so there's basically this kind of uh, socially reproductive work that's being contributed to their well-being that isn't just money, you know? So it's a bit like benefits, you know, they're still kind of getting the benefits of being part of that shop. They have steady work. As long as they're not fucking up, they get to stay there. And it's pretty much a job for life as long as they continue to, to do good work. You know, it might take yeah. you, as I understood it, it might take you a long, long time, a very long time to make it from apprentice to journeyman, from journeyman to master. You know, they don't, they don't rush you through it because they want to make sure that you get it first. Um, right. But that longevity, that, that emphasis on longevity is um, two-sided, you know, that they're, uh, they're helping you to secure your mastery of it. Um, but at the same time, they're also helping you to keep a job, you know, um, and have income and so forth and so on. So that's, that's, again, that's in the kind of ideal, uh, model, traditional model. Um, and that's definitely what I understand to be the case for, you know, my, grandfather and his family and how they operated it. Okay. Um, right. So it's, it's like, and I'm not trying to just rationalize cause you know, he, he was a small business owner when he became the master plumber and all this shit, you know, it's the family business, all this stuff. Um, I'm not trying to just rationalize. Like there was probably a pretty significant income disparity between like him as the master plumber and owner and like his fucking employees who were like journeymen and stuff, you know? And to me, that's, right that's not really ideal, you know, but that's kind of like, that was the traditional way of, of doing things. Um, the way she goes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but this is kind of just me trying to explain. This is kind of how it could be in its best form. Yeah, so that actually and, like kind of yeah, touches on what there. I was going to get to. Okay. Yeah. Uh, which is um, like the reality of the apprentice uh, journeyman master relationship. Uh-huh. Uh, at, at some points in history, it was a lot more mm-hmm. like modern employment, where yeah. Yeah. the interests of journeymen and masters were mm-hmm. opposed because right. the master would, you know, either own the shop or you know, mm-hmm. uh, just generally have uh, higher income or expect too much out of the journeyman workers. And yeah. a lot of a lot of journeymen would not just never become masters. Like it wasn't a sure thing yeah. that you'd become a master. So it was an exploitative um, relationship. Yeah, yeah. In, in these cases, in the, yeah. Uh, in the post-revolutionary period, again, I don't know if this is post-American Revolution or post-Industrial Revolution. Uh, the turnover rate for journeymen became very high. So mm-hmm. <clears throat> one example cited in this article that I read was a shop that you needed usually no more than five workers at a time. Uh, mm-hmm. Had forty nine different journeyman workers over an eight year period. 
man. Yeah. Oh shit. That's um, like that's six or seven new yeah, ones every six. fucking year. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. yeah. Supposedly there was uh, a lot of upward mobility during the yeah. during that period. So uh-huh, um, uh-huh. part of that could have been journeymen trying to switch jobs to get higher wages, okay. like a lot okay. of millennials yeah, do now. Yeah. Right, um, the lateral move. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, and what was I going to say? Oh, and, and also, uh, there was this whole thing of, uh, like the Elizabethan poor laws, uh, mm-hmm. made it so that, uh, parish officials could, uh, take vagrants or, uh, children mm-hmm. whose parents they deemed unfit to take care of them and right. put them into apprenticeships. And this kind of grew into, uh, Workshops getting like b- giant groups of child laborers oh, that yeah. had like no training, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so that would like basically we'll get into this more later, but it kind of uh, was the start of the like grisly child labor uh-huh, uh-huh. that we see during the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, I was going to say, like, you know, <laughs> as soon as you mentioned the, the, these parish children um, that got rounded up, literally rounded up in batches, which is sounds eerily familiar. Um, yeah, I, I, I was going to say, like, you know, I can think of uh, at least one class of, of people in, in capitalism who'd be interested in getting, you know, a giant mass of unskilled child workers in one place. Uh, yeah, Peter Thiel. Yeah, exactly. For his, Holy his shit. blood bags. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Like you know, uh, they just they, you know cycle them through. You got your, you got eighty percent of the kids on the line. You know, uh, yep. eighteen hours a day, and uh, and then the other twenty percent of the kids are the healthiest are, uh, ones. Right, the healthiest ones. You know, are marching single file to your fucking office to to get their blood drawn, so you can you know for reasons. Uh, right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they sign a consent form, so it's okay. Right. As everyone knows, if you put it on a contract, no matter what the contract says, you know, that's fine. <laughs> then it makes it everything's fine. Yeah. Especially yeah. if you're a child, I'm pretty sure. Especially as a child, yes. yes. <laughs> it's a legally binding agreement. <laughs> right, right. Just kind of kind of like how, like, two-year-olds can testify in court on their own, on yes. their own behalf, you know? Yeah, right, yeah. right. Yeah. Um, um, and so before we move on to the factory system, this is a little mm-hmm. out of band, but I think it's very interesting and worth reading in full. Uh, this, mm-hmm. I think, is from uh, Montgomery, 1968. Uh, I didn't put a citation here, but anyway. So it says, uh, an extreme case of immigrants providing an Im- industry with its skilled labor was offered by the thousand or so carpet weavers in the country as in the early 1830s, at least nine-tenths of whom were Scots, largely from Kilmarnock or, and Ayr. Uh, or maybe it's air. I don't know. Uh, so well did these mechanics know each other that when 63 of them struck the Thompsonville Carpet Manufacturing Company in Connecticut, they quickly assembled, compiled from memory a list of the 11 other principal carpet manufactories in the nation, wrote personal letters to friends in each of them dis- explaining the dispute, notified the Blue Bonnet Tavern in New York City, which served as the country's hiring hall for carpet weavers, to divert struck men from uh, sorry to divert men from the struck plant and dispatched an appeal to the old countrymen in that city to warn off any Scots not reached by the other methods. <laughs> so they basically got this extremely successful strike going by just talking to all their friends who were also carpet weavers. 
<laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, okay, so we can move on to the factory systems. It's, that's what our focus is on. So I'll, I'll just start with the Derby Silk Mill, which was the mm-hmm. first successful silk mill in England, okay. uh, which was built at the behest of John and Thomas Lom. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lom received a patent for silk throwing technology, which mm-hmm. was most likely the result of industrial espionage in Italy. Uh, <laughs> So in 1715, John Lom got a job at an Italian silk throwing mill and uh, broke into the shop at night to diagram the machinery. In 1718, uh, he returned to England and got the patent uh, for the technology. Mm-hmm. And uh, interestingly, the, the patent says like uh, it's something like uh, a method of silk throwing which has never before been seen in Great Britain. <laughs> Not in the world, <laughs> just in Great Britain. That's <laughs> amazing. Uh, yeah. Um, just nobody, and, just and, nobody bothered to tell him about it. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, well, everybody knows um, that. I don't so know how to explain it. <laughs> right. So he got a patent for that uh, technology, and uh, yeah. then he had a mill built in Derby. Um, mm. And I could not figure out where he got the funds to actually do that, because prior to this, he was he was a journeyman. Uh, Mercer, which is a silk thread. Uh-huh. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, I, I bet it was. Um, if, if he was just a journeyman with with no with no you know quote unquote capital up till then, I wouldn't be surprised if he got a loan or even a gift from somebody simply because he was the motherfucker who stole the diagram or you know did, did you know stole the idea whatever. Um, because like that's one of those examples in in capitalism where you can sort of kind of self make, you know, um, yeah. is when you're like, oh, actually, I think I the crowd is funding a lot of stuff. Oh yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, because they they just wanted to like shit stuff out and get as like advanced as possible because yeah. they're an empire and it makes sense for them to do that. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Right. Hmm. Um. So, do, 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 do. Um, now this is kind of mixed up. Uh, so, William Hutton, who is a famous poet, I think, uh, he worked at the Derby Silk Mill, and he described long hours, low wages, and common beatings, um, and that work continued as long as it was physically possible. So, like, God, they basically yeah. only shut down for uh, bad weather. <laughs> Or, like, mandated holidays or shit like that. Jesus Christ. Yeah. But that's not slavery. I think Hutton was working, like, 12 hours a day or some shit like that. Yeah. I mean, that sucks. Uh, (laughs) Oh, my God. That sucks. Um, So, while I was researching this, uh, one of our friends, uh, Nathan, uh, the the French kid, uh, came back to our group DM on Twitter. Oh, how nice. uh, Apologize for leaving us, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, groveled for for days. Right, Uh, right. We we hazed the shit out of him for the second time. (laughs) Um, Yeah, he's uh, not doing too well now, but uh, he'll recover eventually. Um, (laughs) We made him him batch off into the skull uh, and everything. (laughs) Um, But he started talking about uh, some research that his dad was doing, uh, Pierre Mm -hmm. Gervais, um, Mm -hmm. which is uh, very interesting. He studies 
accounting in like this the uh, 18th and 19th century. Oh, and cool. so he's looking at the account books of uh, factories. Mm-hmm. And oh, this is his current uh, his current work. Apparently, mm-hmm. until at least the 1830s, mm-hmm. uh, wage laborers were not typically influ- employed. He said in factories, but I think what it what it actually is is by factory owners. Um, okay. And so, on the other hand, like the machinery would be rented by the factory owners to independent producers. And so, mm-hmm. I saw some I saw some hints of this in other. Uh, both other work by Pierre and other stuff that I read for this. Uh, and so I, I think what the arrangement was, the factory owner would rent the equipment to a factory foreman. The factory foreman would be an independent uh, person uh, who may also be hired by someone else who has the capital to hire uh, you know, a foreman. And the foreman would hire all of the uh, wage laborers who would then work the machines. Um, and part of the reason I think this is because of William Hutton's description of working at the Derby Silk Mill, where obviously he was being paid wages if he's complaining about low wages, um, unless he's talking about, I mean, I, I feel like if it weren't, if it weren't wage labor, he would describe like low peace rates or something like that, you know? Um, and so I think that's what was happening was the, the chain went factory owner to independent foreman to hired wage labor. Um, so I, I think that's pretty interesting. Um, and let's see. Oh, the uh, the earliest... So that's that's the Derby Silk Mill. The earliest factory that we know of, at least in England, uh, was a water mill in... Uh, I think it's pronounced Lime, Re- Lime Regis? Lime Regis? I don't know. Um it was uh, found in a cadastral survey carried out by William the Conqueror in 1066. Ah, uh, yes. The big one. Yes. Yes. Yeah. How they, how they figured out how to parcel out all the, all the new stolen land to all their favorite buddies. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so. Okay. Um, th- sorry, uh, this is a little disorganized, but um, so I, I don't know where I heard this, but this is fairly recent, and, and the reason that I wanted to do this episode, uh-huh. uh, unfortunately, I was not able to find any good research on it, because I just couldn't construct the right query. Sure. Um, but I remember hearing or reading um, that factories actually preceded, preceded industrialization. So the the narrative that we have of the Industrial Revolution was... Uh, we used to work in uh, workshops, and uh, then some really smart guys figured out how to build machinery for the first time ever in history. Oh, uh, right, that narrative, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and, and then factories became just common. had to make factories, right? Right, yeah, right. and it's it's all because of economies of scale, because factories are just, they just are more efficient in reality. Simply, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which is um, arguable, right? So. Right. Uh, <laughs> so apparently most manufacturing in the 18th century was actually done in rural areas uh, using yep. the putting out system. Right, and right, right. Yeah. The working class in the cities worked uh, mostly at ports uh, uh-huh. because there was a huge amount of shipping going on from the colonies okay. and okay, as artisans okay. because there were some right. goods that needed to be made in the cities where, like nearby. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm like, based on this, I, I was starting to think that like 
if the fact that if it is true that factories preceded industrialization, factories probably served the purpose of employing large, uh, either recently unemployed or like newly employed uh, workers with little training, such as the parish uh, children. Yeah. So the Highland clearances, classic case of uh, fuckery. Uh, that still has people pissed off to this very day. Um, basically, uh, just to give you the Wikipedia real quick, the Highland clearances were the eviction of a significant number of tenants in the Scottish Highlands and Islands, mostly in the period 1750 to 1860. So about 100, 110 years of basically forced migration, you know, of, yep. of uh, workers, you know, I mean, of people who were at, at first tenants and peasants and, and shit um, to become industrial workers or other kinds of workers, you know, essentially uh, displaced laborers. Uh, and <laughs> I love the way this fucking sentence is constructed. In the first phase, clearance resulted from agricultural improvements driven by the need for landlords to increase their income, which is just, Hilarious. The need for landlords to increase their income. Then in parentheses, they make the excuse, many landlords had crippling debts. <laughs> and you're like, well, fuck well, you. you know? <laughs> what's interesting about that is I was reading in, I mean, I've been reading this book for like fucking five years and yeah. I'm only like a third of the way through it or something. Okay. But in The Invention of Capitalism by Perlman, uh, who's a Marxist, yeah, um, he describes... Uh, the emerging bourgeois uh, merchant class uh, uh-huh. as uh, getting uh, the local lords and lairds of um, traditional England uh, okay. really into uh, modern luxuries. And oh, yeah. mm-hmm. they would keep you know raising the price and yeah. uh, it basically uh, like started forcing them to take on debts and yeah. um, which of course they provided, and uh, as a result, uh, rents quadrupled in in England and Scotland uh, during that period. Yep. Yeah. And that's part of how they like kind of destroyed the, um, you know, the traditional land tenure system was by uh-huh. doing this whole thing. Um, yeah. I'm sure that a lot of them, like sold their land off in order to pay off debts or debts and stuff you know, just yeah. to make a, you know, a nice bundle of cash. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So, um, basically, um, this is, this is actually something that Marx talks about. Um, but I can't possibly summarize what he says about it, except that this is, um, one of these huge, clear, stark examples of capitalist enclosure of land. Um, and uh, as it puts it in Wikipedia, uh, this is that fucking capitalist double talk, you know, double speak. I mean, where it says enclosure of the common lands and the and the da 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 fields. This fucking term uh, was a method of improvement. And of course, capital improvements is always just code for like fucking people over who can't stop you, um, basically. So, uh, but basically, they you know they just yeah they they took the land. And they replaced uh, mixed farming with large-scale sheep farming, so they could get more wool, so they could make money off wool, and so forth. Uh, so this is actually how all this land became cheap land. 
says, fuck you guys. Basically, you know, these are all my, like, ancestors' cousins and shit, so, you know, I have to fucking hate, you know, and various other people. I actually am a picked. (laughs) I'm part picked. (laughs) But, um... (laughs) You got me, motherfucker. I'm actually, I'm actually uh, one quarter picked. Oh, cool. Well, you yeah. know, I guess we're we're, we're cool then. <laughs> yeah. Um, that means I can wear their traditional uh, clothing and everything. Hell yeah. Um, and do all their dances and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm an expert in the pictish dances. Uh, you, you can't see me. I'm doing it right now. Uh, and I'm making mysterious. I can hear you playing the traditional picked drum. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, so. Uh, this actually like this, this, the Highland clearances um, in some ways its role has been, uh, I think misunderstood and exaggerated for, 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 you know, cultural reasons, but in other ways it cannot be overstated. Like it is a massive case of just like capitalist, not just exploitation, but like forced migration, um, essentially a kind of genocide, you know, uh, that through that, um, you know, through migration and also like by just forcing people who, you know, shouldn't have been forced off to go and like not have these self-sustaining work that they had before, um, but to become, you know, to be forced into uh, displaced labor arrangements, you know, and, and instability and all this shit. And then a lot of them eventually went to um, North America. Uh, anyway, so I'm sure that a lot of them were part of the masses of people um, who were then considered quote unquote unskilled. And of course we've discussed what unskilled really means in, you know, capitalist political economy. It just means they don't want to pay you very much because they fucking don't give a fuck about you. But, you know, so you've got Scots, you've got children, uh, and, uh, you probably, you know, obviously you have women, um, who are all considered these kind of unskilled, just kind of, well, I'm not sure if women exist. Oh, well, I mean, okay. I mean, okay. So theoretically women, um, if they if they existed at this time, um, there there yeah. are only one gender. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. Um, <laughs> uh, where was I? Oh yeah, yeah. So basically, so basically, I'm just kind of like speaking to this phase of industrialization that we were talking about. How like you know which came first, the chicken or the egg? Which came first, the factory or the industrialization? Um, and as you put it, um, it's likely that like. Uh, they had all these masses of people who they were like, oh, we can exploit these people really easily, you know? Um, so let's just put them all in one place and then put them on these machines and then um, work them to fucking death and not pay them very much. Um, not that it was unique to Scotland, but it was, you know, it was it kind of it went everywhere and we all sort of see that now. But like, um, that was one big case. Anyway. <laughs> uh, so... Next, I want to go into an, a really interesting article I found um, called The Organization of Work, The Emergence of the Factory Revisited, and it's by Rick Sostak in 1989, and it basically uh, analyzes some different arguments about how the early factory system worked and why it emerged. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Uh, According to the article, the development of the factory happened uh, simultaneously with the development of supervised production. Uh, And he even argues that the primary advantage of the factory was actually the ability uh, for labor to be supervised. 
Um, mm. So in the workshop system, you have a bunch of people in these different houses, usually like just their house. Um, and yeah. Um, so like uh, you can't have like a foreman supervising all those people because they're all in different places. But if you're in a factory, you have a bunch of people in one building and a foreman can easily, you know, saunter around and yell at people and beat them with sticks and stuff. <laughs> right. Yeah. Kind of like a plantation but with a exactly. roof on it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he raises a really interesting question, uh, which is why was the putting out system used for centuries and then suddenly abandoned in the 18th century? Um, factories, as I already pointed out, were not non-existent through history. There was one as early as 1066. Mm. Um, so the traditional explanation is we already touched on it. You know, technology favored the factory, um, you know, because some smart guy invented machines that we needed to put them in factories because, uh, you know, factories are more efficient and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, let's see. Do, 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 do. Oh, yeah. So his his evidence against this is, I think, very strong, which is that factories during the shift away from the putting out system actually used exactly the same technologies oh. as workshops. So they were using the same machines. Yeah, yeah. Makes they were sense. just in a centralized yeah. place. Um, so England from around 1650 to 17. I think I missed what you just said. You said they're just, and then did you pause? Oh, uh, I don't know what I was saying. Okay. You said they were using largely the same equipment. As oh yeah. They're using the same, the same technologies. Um, uh-huh. it was just that they were in a centralized location instead of different, different shops. Right. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. So uh, essentially centralization is like a big feature of the factory system, right? Like yeah. Not so much that the machinery itself is especially incredible, although that might be true. It might not be true, but it's centralized. That happened later. Really happening. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, so part of his theory here is that uh, the evolution of transportation systems played was like basically the biggest contributor here. Oh. Um, so from 1750, sorry, 1650 to 1750 in England, uh, they massively expanded their network of roads and canals mm-hmm. uh, to both like industrial centers and, um, you know, network the smaller areas. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, let's see, starting in the 13th and 14th century, um, there was a medieval practice called pavage, uh, mm. in which the king could issue a uh, letters patent granting a person or persons, like a person or organization, uh, mm. the ability to collect tolls or uh, to construct or maintain a road. So okay. they were able to, you know, say, I have a letter from the king saying, mm. I'm allowed to collect money from you for traveling along this road. And then they right. would uh, theoretically use the money to maintain the road. So it's like basically uh, libertarian, uh, <laughs> but yes. like like libertarians invented something that that existed for you no know, like eight hundred years ago. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right. they're like, oh, what if we yeah, were there's actually collect tolls? I'm like, okay, <laughs> yeah, there were actually uh, two other systems that I that I found. Uh, one was called uh, Pontage, I think, and the other was called Murridge. Yeah. Uh-huh. And awesome. Pontage was bridges and Murridge was uh-huh. walls. Oh, okay, okay. So, 
So Pontius uh, and Maurice, that's the Tudor cool. period, uh, which wow. is from the 15th to the 17th centuries. Uh, road maintenance was mostly done by parish vestries, and a vestry is just the most local unit of government. Uh, the parish was like the local administration, administrative division, and the vestry was the um, secular and religious government of the parish. Mm, okay. Um, so they, they took care of all the road maintenance, um, and they were very good at maintaining local roads, so like roads around the parish, but not right. highways that went through the parish to uh, big cities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, from around... I think it was like the late, very, very late 17th century. Um, Mm -hmm. The English government started creating uh, what was called turnpike trusts. And they were uh, regional organizations that maintained roads and collected tolls on them uh, to pay for it. So it was a lot like Mm Pavage, but on a larger scale. Okay. Okay. Um, So they they were formed to fill the gap between the you know, the vestries, local local roads, and the major highways. Um, so they ended up creating, uh, despite uh, how hard it is to maintain roads in England because of how wet it is, uh, they mm-hmm, created, mm-hmm. like, a world-class road system. It was, they had, like, nice. more uh, miles of transportation than any country in the world at the time, even despite its size. Oh. Holy shit. Yeah. That can't be um, that, had, that cannot be overlooked then in in, in, the, in terms of like the ascendancy of British power, right? Like because if yeah. you know, if you have really effective distributive um, networks, you know, and uh, less difficulty distributing, you know, actively, then like you're gonna do pretty well for yourself, you know. And that's just true. That's true regardless of how centralized you are, right? That's true regardless of whether you're an exploitative power. That's just true for anybody. War um, is all about logistics. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, um, that's, yeah, that's really interesting. Didn't realize that. Um, so another factor here is that uh, wagons became a lot more common in the 17th mm-hmm. century. Mm-hmm. Um, so before this, they, like cargo was mostly transported on the backs of horses. And so with wagons, you could use the same amount of horses and carry way more shit because... Uh. So it was being a multiplier. Yep. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Yeah. nice. Um, so and people just all that really stuff meant, like jumping on the wagons, you know, like people yes. of the same opinion would just jump on these wagons from town to town. Yes. Right. Right. It's where that classic phrase, uh, "jumping on the bandwagon" came from. Right. Right. And this is actually how democracy was invented. Yes. Um, <laughs> everyone needs to acknowledge that democracy consists of, you know, um, just two different wagons at the opposite end of town. You know, and people with different opinions go to each wagon, they jump onto it. You know, if you don't agree with those two wagons, then, you know, you don't belong in town. You know, you just need to go to a different town. And, and then the wagons and rush at each other. With alcohol, you, you fall off the wagon. Right, right. right. You know, it's well-known, well-known fact. Um, now, how that ties in with democratic processes is still a mystery, but. <laughs> <laughs> it's a linguistic then, mystery. Exactly. And then you have a party on the wagon. Um, okay. You never yeah. know. I can never tell. Yeah. <laughs> I would say I have one foot on the wagon right now, personally. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I am hanging upside down from it, so you know it doesn't really help. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Like not quite falling off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So basically all this stuff meant that uh, in England, transportation costs became very low because they were shipping the same amount of cargo for way less, uh, took way less time. Uh, like the journey from Manchester to London, which is like a good distance across the country. Uh, currently, if you were to walk it on modern roads, it would take you 59 hours. Um, in uh, the 15th century or the 16th century, uh, if you were to travel by horse uh, from Manchester to London, it would take you 130 hours or so. That's, that's like a whole day. Um, yeah. Um, and then by 1650, I believe, uh, the journey would only take about 60 hours. So they, they have the time it would take to get across the country. Nice, nice. Um, Man, 60 hours to get across the country. That's, that's not bad. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's pretty good. Yeah, um, you, you, you get across, you do a little picnic, you come back, home by dinner. <laughs> Um, and they were actually, uh, like part of the turnpike trust thing was like, uh, people could kind of just like hop on a wagon, like, like you were saying kind of jokingly, but like, (laughs) Ah, they're really good. (laughs) Got (laughs) them. Yeah. Um, so people could just like go around the country, which Mm. I'm sure made it easier for unemployed workers to go to the city and work in a factory. Right. Right. So so, you know, you see a bunch of dudes on a wagon, they're all, you know, they're all uh, looking chipper and happy, and you're like, oh, where, where are you going? Oh, I'm going down to London to get exploited. Oh, awesome. <laughs> Let me join. <laughs> Let me jump on that bandwagon. Yeah, yeah. Everyone's welcome. That's called a callback, uh, folks. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So the transportation cost thing had a number of effects that made factories more advantageous. Uh, the cost of shipping food and maintaining inventories fell. Uh, shipping food for obvious reasons, and mm. maintaining inventories because the like the more uh, quick and reliable your transportation is, uh, the less of your inputs that you have to keep, and right. the faster you can get rid of the outputs that you produce. Exactly. Exactly. Well, this is so, and this is a lead up. Like they didn't know it at the time, but I'm sure a lot of them had an inkling of what would eventually become. In the 20th century, uh, just-in-time distribution. That's exactly uh, what I was about to say. <laughs> ah, damn. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> oh, no. Go ahead, man. <laughs> okay, so just-in-time distribution um, is a, an innovation of, as I recall, it was something that the Japanese automakers came up with. Toyota. Yep. That's right. It was Toyota. That's right. Um, they, dude, they really knew how to work a factory uh, floor because one of their interesting things that they did right, uh, uh, for better or worse, um, was they would allow teams of, they would have teams of, of specialists around, um, uh, let's just call it like a station within the factory. So instead of just having like an assembly line per se, they would have like a bunch of different um, teams of guys working on the same station. And then so each team would learn to work together really effectively. So that was kind of cool. But then, one of the things they would do is that they would reward you for um, if you're a specialist on any given team doing whatever the fuck you do as a specialist, if you have an idea for how work can be done better, then you can just come up to the fucking, I, I don't know if it's the foreman or the, or the like plant manager or whatever, but you could come up to the up top and say, 
hey, uh, I've been doing this for a while. I noticed that if we do this, this, and this, we could we could like save three steps, or we save this cost, or save, or we we could make it better, you know, um, or even make a better product, right? So that was one of the things they did right. But another thing that they developed, and I th- I think that it was because they were uh, kind of in tune with their teams, right? Uh, and this is actually an argument. So it was kind of like. I think it was kind of like they co-opted some of the ideas behind like syndicalism, but then they still made it a hierarchy. Um, Right. But that kind of hybrid model was really effective. So eventually somebody on the floor or, or somebody in the mid mid range at like the foreman level figured out, Hey, we don't even need to keep all this stock here all the time because that's expensive. You have to buy it all up front, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then it takes time to produce it anyway. Um, when, when production is a flow, right? Production is a flow and sales are a flow, but this input stuff, we haven't converted that into just like a flow yet, uh, per se, like it it flows to us and then it sits there and it it, it can decay potentially. It might get rusty or it just goes to waste if we don't end up using it. So they figured out a way to essentially, um, I forget exactly how they did it, but they would anticipate orders, um, and then uh, through this anticipation, they would um, then anticipate how much inventory they could get just to fulfill those orders, quote unquote, just in time. And so then they would order the inventory in such a way that the logistical, you know, the supply chain coming up to them uh, of the inputs they needed to manufacture would arrive to the plant just in time to be added as an input and and turned into a finished product. So they didn't have to store all this shit all the time, um, like in the old days, if that makes any sense. I'm not sure if I, it was a bit of an ass back. Yeah, it's actually called the the economic order quantity. It's uh, part of queuing theory. Um, I think we should just do a whole episode on the Toyota manufacturing system because we could easily get into oh, yeah. Toyota and everything. Is they really revolutionized manufacturing. Yeah. Like It's crazy. Yeah, they really did. Yeah. So then grocery stores in the States started to use the Toyota just in time, but for like food and stuff. So that's actually an interesting adaptation. But go ahead. Yeah. It's basically used everywhere now, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Any, uh, any it was like, business anyway. Yeah. I th- I, from what I remember from my coursework, it was Toyota did this for autos, then American groceries adapted it and picked it up. And then from there, everybody was like, oh, this is really fucking effective. You can do it for, you know, complex manufactured products like cars, and you can do it for like simple commodities like, um, you know, like, like essentially Vacuums. primary, primary, exactly. Like, like, so the, yeah, so they're just like, everybody, everybody fucking do this all the time. Um, which is one reason why, uh, well, it's one way in which I think, um, shipping has changed but also like shipping has always been important but it's it's sort of funny that like container shipping you know we did that episode on that like container shipping is now like massive industry or massive business i should say whatever um and and so you've got these massive containers of shit going every which way all the time uh but it's not to like fill a warehouse with inputs per se it's to get things to people just in time and, and yet you still need extreme volume. So it's like, I, I don't know if it's kind of a wash at that point when it comes to distribution, um, but everything, but what it does mean, what it does mean is that um, the massive shipping um, and distribution uh, 
flows that are now out there and that are necessary for just-in-time production to work, uh, those distribution channels and this, the rate of travel and everything become that much more um, important and therefore that much more expensive uh, when they fail or break down or are delayed, right? Because then manufacturing just can't happen. Um, and so it's like, it's a time and cost saver uh, when, when you can make just-in-time work, but when there's some kind of distributional problem, they're just fucked. So that's just something to keep in mind, listeners. Just something to keep in mind. Uh, so workers started to specialize further, uh, performing smaller tasks repeatedly. Uh, so Stack says this would uh, drive up the cost of transportation for workshops as uh, semi-finished parts move between shops and cottages. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't see any reason to think that the increased specialization caused the shift to the factory as opposed to like being the result of it. He doesn't really yeah. even ask that question, let alone like provide any evidence to support it. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I just don't see that there's probably much of a like necessary relationship anyway between specialization and the factory. Like the factory is centralized, but like the, like if you want to talk about a need for specialization, you talk about like workshops and stuff, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I guess his thing, right. Like the factory is where you would happens. have, you would, you would be doing an assembly line production. Right, right. 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 But that's, that's the funny thing, right. Is that, uh, this is where that kind of unskilled, you know, terminology comes in is that you look at an assembly line and the whole idea is sure. It's, it's a specialization of a kind, I guess, but it's very like rudimentary specialization in many cases, you know, it's check. Uh, uh, well, you know, so in my case, I worked at a fucking factory. It was my first paid job. Um, and I was there for almost a month and it sucked. Uh, but I was a TIG welder and I would weld seven uh, bushings at a time, which are the oil injectors for pistons in a car engine. And, and I would have to use a, a TIG welding gun, which is tungsten and gas. So it'd be this sharp tungsten rod that was like gripped by a thing and you'd like have a foot pedal that would um, send charge to the tungsten, like a, like a high amount of charge that would heat it up, just like in a light bulb, like a conventional light bulb, right? And the, the tip, the sharp point of the tungsten rod would then essentially become extremely hot. And then if you touched it to something like steel, uh, then it would spark and weld it, right? So I would weld, right? So I'd weld this nut to this pipette uh, right at the at the join uh, where there was like a hole in the nut, like on the side, uh, and I would do that seven at a time. And I, you know, the goal was to get like two or three thousand of these done a day. Okay, fun. You do usually you nut in a hole. Yeah, with my pipette. Um, <laughs> uh, seven at a time. Uh, but yeah, so it's a really cute uh, name. <laughs> pipette. <laughs> yeah. It seemed very dainty. <laughs> yes, pipette is actually my favorite character in Les Mis. But anyway, uh, yeah, so like, so like, uh, you know, I was a specialist, right? It's kind of the point of me saying all this besides making a jerk off joke, but like, (laughs) so I was a specialist, uh, in TIG welding. That was the like entry level job at this factory before they let you do anything else. And you have to pretty much prove yourself because it's just this monotonous bullshit. And 
yes, there is there is a knack to it. And yes, you should be paid a fair wage for it. But beyond a certain point, as long as your like hands aren't like constantly shaking and your and your eyes aren't fucked up, like you could it, almost anybody could probably figure out how to do this. You just if there's a knack to it, and then once you get that knack down, then the primary concerns for you are staying sane and focused for eight hours at a time. Uh, and just like not fucking up more than like a few per day. And that's pretty much it, you know? Yeah. Um, so yes, I was a specialist, but I wasn't a specialist the way that like, say a, uh, you know, like, a, like an Alzheimer's, right. Or yeah, exactly. Like an Alzheimer's doctor or a nuclear engineer is a specialist. Yeah. Right. So it's really interesting that this term is used in econ to say any number of these things, right. Any range of quote unquote specialization. Um, yeah, I mean, it's really like, just hyper specialization, right? Because right. like a, you know, a specific type of doctor still has like a whole range of skills. Exactly. But exactly. if you're working it's on a very large like scale, a hyper specialized assembly house. line job, you're yeah. only expected to have a single skill. Yeah. Yeah. And this is where that kind of, that kind of reasoning comes in that like capitalism, like industrial capitalism, uh, it, as, as we know it, um, you know, makes an effort to turn people into machines to kind of make them useless. Right. Um, uh, which again is kind of a Marx thing, but it's like anybody can fucking understand that. Right. Like it makes you less and less useful to the system, even though you're necessary to the running of the system um, because it de-skills you in so many ways um, and, and so forth and so on. And, and what's fucking depressing. Yeah, I was going to say that like um, yeah. de-skill is actually kind of a, uh... I don't know. I mean, I guess it's kind of true, but it also kind of buys into the like unskilled labor language, you know? Right. Like, yeah. I, no, I, yeah. I kind of think hyper specialization is probably a better term. Well, let's put it this way. Um, and I, I agree. Um, so, um, de-skilling to me in this context, it, much of it means to me, um, you take these people. So, for example, the Highland Clearances, right? You've got these people who are, uh, ten, you know, tenant, um, like homesteader forcibly types, resettled. forcibly resettled, right? Yeah. They have like this uh, massive range um, of skills uh, and know-how and rich kind of cultural history and context and economic, uh, uh, industrial and agricultural um, history and context. And all, all these things that they are able to do now, maybe they don't do all of these things at expert levels. Maybe they don't do all of these things as well as any other person can, but they do it well enough to survive and live and, and subsist. Then they take, they're taken off that land. They're forced off. They're put into this situation where there's like 300 of them in a fucking, you know, unventilated, you know, brutality building. And, um, you know, uh, working 12 to 16 hours a fucking day uh, and getting fucking abused and the women are getting fucking molested and raped and the kids probably are too, you know, by and large. And all this full fucking shit and they're not getting paid very much, right? Uh, and then, of course, rent's high because they don't own their own fucking home anymore. Uh, and in this case, de-skilling really is that they have skills that are useful and they have capabilities and capacities that are that are useful to themselves, um, that that are their right to be able to use 
but they're being deprived of the opportunity, and, you know, and and their rights are being trampled, you know, to, to do those things. And so then they are re- essentially they're reduced in their role and in their capacities, um, essentially by somewhere between coercion and entrapment, you know, um, to not exercise the skills which are good for them. Yeah. Um, but to exercise a very limited array, array of skills, um, a very simple skills that are good for the, you know, the people who run the factory and own it. And to me, that's really yeah, what so, this feeling uh, ought to mean. <laughs> it, it's interesting you use the Highlanders as, as an example because another mm-hmm. thing that I read in The Invention of Capitalism mm-hmm. was that uh, like a, a Scotsman, uh, like a traditional Scotsman, could make a pair of shoes called brogues oh, yeah. in about two hours. Yeah. Uh, but oh, yeah. if they were to do wage labor for them, it would take them like days to yeah. be able to afford a pair of shoes, which were uh, even lower quality than yeah. the brogues were. Yep, exactly, exactly. And this is this is the insane thing about um, like capitalist industrial uh, practices is I was thinking about this just, well, the other day and also for most of my life. But like you think about, <laughs> <laughs> you think about things like shoes, uh, shirts, um, furniture, right? Uh, all these, all these things that are craft commodities, um, that are finished goods that traditionally, um, would be made by, uh, you know, a, to, to borrow the, the structure and the term that we were talking about earlier, the master, or the journeyman, the journey person. Um, or your wife. <laughs> or your wife. Right, right. Um, you know, or like woven goods, you know, textiles, stuff like that. Um, all these things that, that the factories essentially um, took over and took away from people, people's ability to make for themselves and for each other. Uh, they are largely produced in less quality uh, and um, the cheapness of these goods is uh, actually kind of a a myth, like because we don't make that much money, right? Uh, so you know, you can if you want really cheap shit, you can get really cheap shit, but it's basically commensurate with the shit wage you're making. So it all kind of is a wash. And then if you want good shit, well, you have to make good money, and to make good money, you have to be an exploiter or like a lucky specialist of some kind that is important to the military industrial complex and yada 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 you know and so yeah it's like we live in like a cheapened uh a cheapened economy we live in a cheapened material culture um and not just yeah i think clothes are a great example because all the clothes that we buy now are just like pieces of garbage that you know oh yeah it falls apart a season especially especially for women's clothes oh yeah exactly it's crazy how often women have to buy clothes yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the interesting things, you know, since we're on that topic, uh, like the cost difference between um, more men's kind of boring clothing, you know, by and large boring clothing, um, but which is often made with like a slightly higher quality. Um, so it's like sturdier, but also shittier looking. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then women's clothing, which is like very heavily trained to the like um um what do they call that like 
the micro seasons and shit um, yeah. in fashion so that like, oh, you always have to look good because we've sexually commodified you and we expect right. you to always be pretty in whatever way some dipshit in fucking New York decides you have to be, right? Uh, and then you have to make those decisions and you have to, you know, put up the costs for like cosmetics and clothing and all this shit and constantly be shifting and dancing through this shit. And then, um, you know, but then the expectation in like the kind of hetero patriarchy is that like, well, you know, um, if you're a rich man, you'll just get something that like is tailor made and you're just like, you look good all the time and it's like high quality and, and fuck you. And if you're not a rich man, fuck you automatically, you know? Um, so it's, but even you know, then, like I have, I have clothing that is like twelve years old. That yeah. only recently, like like I have pairs of jeans from when I was eighteen that only recently like got rips in the knees in both knees. Yeah. Like some of them had rips in one knee, but now like all of them have rips in both knees, and like the you know the cuff on the bottom is like shredded and shit like that. But like I've had those jeans for twelve fucking years. <laughs> And oh, yeah, I yeah. only stopped wearing them maybe a year ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, and then and, and and let me like uh, adjust uh, my my sort of tone here. I don't mean that like men have it worse than women. That is obviously not true. I think we all know that. Um, um, but just like yeah, I thought you were I saying that like, men have it better than women. I thought that was your whole okay, point. Okay, okay, I'm gonna, okay. So that's clear. Yeah, men's clothing is often typically much sturdier um, yeah. and so forth. Also like the lower expectations that are placed on us um, to be dressed in any particular, uh, you know, stylishness, whatever. I also think uh, the decline uh, of yeah. lifespan has been, has been very rapid as well. Like if you had clothing that you bought in like the year 2000, it would mm -hmm. probably last a lot longer than if you bought clo some clothing now. Yeah. Yeah. I think between the sort of the, just the general cheapening, of of clothing and 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 all that and also like the the shift toward like the i think the term is like thinner receipt. fabrics yeah and yeah thinner fabrics and all this shit and then also you know, stitches yeah i mean like and because like if they can cut costs on their side you know for the inputs and in the, in the manufacturing um but then still charge you as much or more um that's just one part of that's one way that you increase your differential power right um yeah in, in manufacturing plus like um, if they can if they can shave a penny off of the cost of a pair of jeans and they make yeah. a million pairs of jeans every year yeah yep. that's yeah like a hundred yep. hundred thousand dollars they save something like that that's a bonus you know yeah or part of a bonus um, <laughs> plus plus not only that but if the jeans become cheaper and you keep buying them which you will because you don't have another source for them Right, they, exactly. Additionally, they make even more money because then you have to buy them more often, so they get more revenue and lower costs as well. So it's a win-win for them to make things cheaper to the point that like you won't complain about it, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's hmm. anyway, we're getting off track. Textiles, yeah. So um, textiles were also a whole other fucking set of topics. So yeah, yeah. Back. So back to the hyper specialization uh, division of labor thing. So. I think what may have actually caused the increased division of labor was the reduced cost of imported materials. Mm. So according to Sostak from the 17th to 18th century, um, like manufacturers started using like way more specialized materials and, and, and more materials in general. So like 
he uses a, an example of buckle makers. They went from using just iron and tin uh, in the 17th century to uh, including copper, zinc, brass, glass, jewels, and imitation gold and silver uh, in by the 18th century. And then, like, potters began to use clays from around the country instead of just whatever was there. And oh, okay, they would okay. decorate them with imported bone ash and flint. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I think that, like, the fact that there were more materials being used um, because it was cheaper meant that... Uh, people could be just specialized in like, you know, putting a, a glass jewel on a buckle instead right. of like making the whole thing, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, because people didn't already have the skills to do that necessarily. So, you know, it would be easier to push them into a more specialized job where they right. were just doing the one thing. Right. Right. Yeah, like, um, and again, so like, specialization is in a narrower role, like yes. a narrowing as opposed to like a deepening. Yeah. 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 